Um, so welcome everyone to another episode of Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, where we talk about scandals of Hollywood, obviously things that are haunted in Hollywood, and uh, anything about the evil underbelly of Tinseltown. Bum, bum, bum. Today's hosts are Roxana. It's actually in Hollywood. And North me, Hollywood. North Hollywood. It's the same. It's 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 ish. It's on, on the upper side of the mountain of the Hollywood sign. The back end of the Hollywood sign. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then me, Tia, in uh, Hollywood adjacent Las Vegas. Woo! I've been watching. What was I saying? I've been watching the ABC Murders with the Agatha, Agatha Christie with uh, John Malkovich and Rupert Grint um, from Harry Potter. Ron from Harry Potter is all mm-hmm. grown up and like kind of a badass in this. So that's what I've been doing with my day today, mm-hmm. um, and it's pretty good. Only I haven't really been paying attention too much to it. It's something um, just in the background. Yeah, but it's one of those ones where I should be paying attention because there's a lot of layers. I like, I love Agatha Christie so much. I love Death on the Nile. Yes. Um, and what was the other movie that came out? Oh, uh, Murder on the Orient. I just Brad. finished it uh, the other week. It's oh, okay. A- Do you want me to bring it to Vegas? You want to borrow it? The book? Yeah. Um, maybe. Um... I could always get it on Audible too because I have two credits on Audible right now. On Audible, yeah. Yeah, I could get it on Audible. Um, I've been listening on Audible. Uh, oh God, I always pronounce it wrong. It's fucking Sherlock Holmes, uh, Moriarty, Moriarty. Yeah. Yes, that's what I've been looking listening to. Um, it's a podcast of the like a dramatic podcast of the story um Sherlock Holmes is kind of a, not a good person <laughs> yeah did you he, ever see BBC version with Benedict Cumberbatch uh I I have not seen yeah. that um but who's in this one I don't know who's in it but well, the pompous dick yeah it's like the Sherlock Holmes is not like the main character in this, you know. Moriarty is the main character, um, but yeah, geez, Sherlock Holmes is not a good person. I didn't realize that. I've never really read Sherlock Holmes or watched it, you know. Which I'm surprised because I'm like really into like old anything from like the 1800s into the 1940s. I know that's a whole big time period <laughs> where a lot of shit happened, but like, I don't know. I just like vintagey everything, you know? And I mean, I like Agatha Christie, obviously. And I don't know. I just, I need to broaden my horizons a little bit more. So trying to listen to a lot of stuff through Audible and that's been on, uh, yeah, that's been what I've been listening to uh, a lot. So I have five more episodes. There's 10 episodes in it and I'm on episode five. Um, but yeah, it's really awesome. So cool. yeah. Podcast, I've been listening to Behind the Shadows 
which is a podcast where they talk about the behind the scenes of what we do in the shadows. And each episode, they have a guest star. So, you know, Fred Amundsen, uh, who is in one of the more recent episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, they interviewed Kristen Schaal. She's like in the first episode because she plays the guide. Um, and then they have you have you been watching any of the episodes? The I've seen one? the movie and I watched like the first two episodes, but I ended I which I really liked it. I liked it like so fucking much. Um, but I just got horribly distracted with life and <laughs> didn't uh, didn't keep up with it. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I should totally get back into it because I think it's I thought it was just so brilliant and funny. Um, yeah. yeah I love vampires and I love almost all vampire movies oh speaking of vampires the Anne Rice interview with the vampire series is coming out I have not seen the tra trailer yet because it's oh, like Comic Con weekend all the trailers are coming out for them they're going to be revamping the series <laughs> revamping they're yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're uh, making a mini series or Maybe it's a longer series, but of Interview with a Vampire, which I read the book and I thought, uh, why are you shaking your face? It's the worst of them. I was just having this conversation last night that of the the Lestat series, Interview with a Vampire, to me, is the most emotional and boring and tedious. That oh. I hated the damn because it had a little bit more action to it hmm. i think just because i grew up with the movie that like maybe i love it and also i have um <laughs> i would say my sexual orientation is the cast of interview with a vampire <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know uh yeah. specifically antonio banderas um you know uh maybe the cast of the mummy but uh, <laughs> that's another you know, as well but um yeah I haven't watched the trailer of it yet but I'm like excited to see it but I'm also like yeah a little apprehensive uh that is the only book of the series of Anne Rice's series that I've read so I don't have anything to gauge it, it on so Vampire Lestat mm -hmm. and then that kind of goes a little bit into more Lestat story which of course is going to be more interesting and less contemplative than louis you know it's very emotional and lestat is more physical and that kind of thing but it also kind of goes into his his uh, relationship with armand and kind of who he was before everything happened and kind of who he came after everything happened as well and then queen of the damned is just action-packed it gets way more into the whole world of the vampires and there's more layers to the hierarchy than we that's where she really does a lot of world building i believe so yeah you could probably find that on audible as well i think they're i didn't get through the whole series though because again life got in the way but mm -hmm. yeah i've also been listening do you remember ruthie our uh tour guide from Hollywood's Haunted read the tarot cards yeah so she wrote a book called Real Walkers mm -hmm. um it's a long one it's like Ooh. 21 hours on audible Ooh, shit yeah um so I'm like an hour in it's and it's really good it's uh it's like a western 
Um, and you know, I love Westerns, um, which actually has to do with our subject today that I'll be talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really good. It's called Rail Walkers. Uh, it's by Ruth Hansen. Uh, and yeah, it's on Audible. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's very much the vibe of um, Anne of Green Gables. Like if Anne of Green Gables was more Western, I don't even remember what era Anne of Green Gables is supposed to be. Which but I just feeling of you know late 1800s or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but more yeah, yeah. I guess this would be late 1800s too because they have the railroad, so it would be getting more towards the 1900s. Yeah. Um. Um. So, um, I don't know who should go first. I feel like I should go first because mine happens first, and mine's really short. Um, our so our topic today is cursed films or curses on people in films. Yeah, in films. Uh, so I know we've done cursed films before, but there are so many. So this could be a topic we uh, cover uh, several times. So I think I should go first because I don't really have too much information mm -hmm. on mine. So it'll be pretty quick. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I got most of my information from Wikipedia, the New York Times. I got some of my information from uh, the casual criminalist. Um, but I can't remember specifically which YouTube channel or YouTube, because he has several like different YouTube channels, but just look him up, casual criminalist. Um, um, oh, and I heard about this on Mysteries at the Museum. Okay. Because I believe that a costume from this film is at the Hollywood Museum, which is on Hollywood and Highland. That is in the former Max Factor building. Okay. Uh, which I've talked about this museum before yeah. uh, on other episodes. So I am talking about a movie that uh, obviously, oh my God, ugh, I'm the worst right now. I'm talking about a movie. <laughs> yes. So, uh, let's just, so Howard Hughes presents John Wayne stars in Oriental in an Oriental Western, Titanic in scope, Titanic in spectacle, Titanic in action. Never has a film breathed such fire, drama, and power. The movie is The Conqueror, which came out in 1956 uh and was a gigantic flop why because maybe we shouldn't cast john wayne as genghis khan <laughs> <laughs> what so i love how like they describe it as titanic in scope titanic in spectacle because it really was the titanic they spent so much money on this for it to be a flop but also for it to kill half of its cast Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Never has a, a film breathed such fire, drama, and power when in fact the cast was actually breathing in nuclear waste. <laughs> so according to the New York Times, oh, okay. Also it has uh 
11% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, now, I have not seen this film because for many reasons, it is hard to find because after the film was made uh, and it was such a flop, uh, Howard Hughes pretty much confiscated all copies and hid them away. And it wasn't until very recently that uh it has been released universal pictures released it to the public again so if you do happen to be able to see it maybe on the criterion collection check it out it is supposed to be horrible but that might be your only chance to see it so if you if you get a chance definitely watch it i've watched several trailers from this film and i must say that boy did they spend money on this movie the costumes are really nice that's all I have to say about that. Um, are you looking it up right now? Oh, God. Yeah. <sighs> are you looking at John, John Wayne as Genghis Khan? It's like full-on Mickey Rooney breakfast at Tiffany's yeah, situation bad. going on there. <laughs> so, um, yeah. According to the New York Times... Uh, the facts appear to have been lost in a technicolor cloud of charging horsemen, childish dialogue, and rudimentary romance. So The Conqueror came out in 1956. It's an epic film directed by Dick Powell and written by Oscar Millard. The film stars John Wayne as the Mongol conqueror Genghis Khan and co-stars Susan Hayward, Agnes Moorhead, Pedro Armendaz, uh, and produced by entrepreneur Howard Hughes. You know, Howard Hughes is really like the go big or go home type of guy. Go big or go home and lock yourself in your home for months on end. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, is that. Um, so Mongol. Mo go home forever. <laughs> go home forever, yeah. Pee in jars. Oh, you God. Know, in, Collect your toenail. <laughs> um, here's the plot of the movie. Mongol chief Temujin battles against Tartar enemy or Tartar armies uh, for the love of the Tartar princess Bortai. Temujin becomes the emperor Genghis Khan. So, so despite the stature of the cast and respectable box office performance, the film was a critical flop it is all often ranked as one of the worst films of the 1950s and also one of the worst films ever made. Uh, like I said, it has 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oof. Yeah. So who'd have thought putting John Wayne as a, as playing Genghis Khan in, I mean, it looks pretty. I'll say that like the costumes and the epic scenes and like the horse like whenever there's like large scenes where people riding horses, like that always looks really cool. Um, John Wayne, I'm not exactly, you know, a fan of, although I like Westerns. Um, yeah. Uh, his life may have been uh, questionable as a per good person. So, mm -hmm. uh, which I'll get into later if we ever go over, uh, you know, uh, the history of gay cowboys and, you know, that sort of timeline that will go down, uh, you know, 
and the diversity of cowboys you know in the actual wild west versus yeah. what john wayne wants us to think you know but at least he believes that you know asian people uh can be played by white people <laughs> i don't know where i was going with that i was trying to make i was trying to give some hope for john wayne here but anyways so John Wayne was at the height of his career. Uh, he had lobbied for the role after reading the script and was w- widely believed to be grossly miscast. I yes. Yeah. <laughs> because maybe he is. Uh, the Conqueror was listed in the 1978 book, The 50 Worst Films of All Times. Uh, Wayne was possi- posthumously named a winner of a Golden Turkey Award for his performance in the film. Oh, oh yeah they wouldn't give that to him if he was alive part of the film was shot in utah location locations such as snow canyon pine valley leeds and harrisburg the exterior scenes were shot in the escalante desert near saint george utah which is 170 130 70 miles downwind of the united states government's nevada national security site which had received the brunt of nuclear fallout from testing active in this period. So yeah, they were testing atomic bombs out in this area. Not unlike where I live now, which was the big draw in the 50s. Like, let's go live where they test the atomic bombs. Um, You know. uh, (laughs) Whoops. Which led to a lot of really cool mid-century modern uh, aesthetics, uh, I must say. I actually have um, over there in the corner, you've seen this before, this lamp. Of oh, yeah. Lamp that looks like um, a mushroom cloud, yeah. um, which is mid-century modern. It's probably from the 50s or 60s, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's where people wanted to live and I guess where they wanted to film their movies. So um in 1953, 11 above-ground nuclear weapons tests occurred at the site as part of Operation Upshot Not Hole. Hey, oh, sorry, that sounds... Okay, never mind. Um, the cast and crew spent many difficult weeks at the site, and producer Howard, Howard Hughes later shipped 60 tons of dirt back to Hollywood in order to match the Utah terrain and lend realism to studio reshoots. Oh, they um, wanted realism, but just on the dirt. Yeah. The dirt had to be, well, Howard Hughes is like so eccentric and like he gets so caught up on like these minute details of things. He's he's definitely, that don't matter. He's definitely the, the like antithesis of Ed Wood. Yes. Um, Which we need to do an episode on him as well. Um, So the film like, what's that? Have you seen the movie, Ed Wood? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, great. I love that so much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, have we talked about Ed Wood on this channel? I can't think. No, I, don't I think haven't. Have. I don't remember. Yeah. I, I don't think we have. Maybe I have. Maybe I have talked about Ed Wood. Like, he would only do one shot. Or, I don't know. He would, like, do everything in a single take. 
Yeah, he wouldn't um, do stuff for like safety. He wouldn't redo it. He just mm -hmm. wanted to get everything done as quickly as possible. Well, yeah. yeah, and but also because they were like didn't have permission to film in half the places that is, they yeah. were filming. <laughs> it had to be you quick. Know? Yeah. Or, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So filmmakers knew about uh, the nuclear test, but the federal government had assured residents that the test posed no hazard to the public health. Mm -hmm. Of the two hundred and twenty film crew members. 91 of them developed cancer during their lifetimes. Oh, no. Well, 46 died from it. No. That's 41.36% of the crew to get oh cancer. God. Yeah. Um, although a number of the cancer cases among the cast and crew is in line with the average for adults in the U.S. at the time, the perception of a link between the film's location and subsequent illness uh not least uh and subsequent illness remains not least because many of those involved in the film developed cancer at a younger age than average so yeah mm -hmm. uh, it, it was not uncommon for men uh specifically to get like lung cancer from smoking you know during this time or people just to get cancer in general, you know, there was a lot of food, things in our food that people were eating in the fifties and things in the common household and lead and things like that, that would cause cancer. So, you know, this could just be a coincidence, but 91 people, which is so almost half the cast, you know, um, getting cancer. At a younger age than normal, right? Seems just, yeah. Yeah, the younger age than normal. It just seems a, a little too much of a coincidence, you know? Maybe. So director uh, Powell, he died of cancer in January of 1963, seven years after the film's release. Hmm. Armin Dawes, um, which I think I'm saying his last name wrong, Armin Durez, uh, was diagnosed with kidney cancer in 1960 and Ooh. killed himself in June of 1963 after he learned his condition had become terminal. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, Wayne, Hayward, and Moorhead all died of cancer in the 1970s. Uh, Hoyt, who played shaman who was also in the film uh died of lung cancer van cleef who played chepe in the film uh his secondary cause of death was listed as throat cancer uh some point to other factors such as the wide use of tobacco wayne in particular was a heavy smoker Wayne himself believed his stomach cancer to have been a result of his six pack a day cigarette habit. Probably did not help. Probably did not help, <laughs> you know, uh, at all. Agnes Moorhead was a non-smoker uh, and a health fanatic, yet died of cancer. Uh, her mother, Mary, maintained it was working on the conqueror, which ultimately killed Agnes. Several of Wayne and Hayward's relatives who visited the set had also had uh, also had cancer scares. Oh, uh, Michael Wayne uh, and his brother Patrick, who were both uncredited roles in the film, 
Uh, one played a Mongol guard in the film, had benign tumors removed uh, from, so Michael Wayne had skin cancer and Patrick had a tumor removed from his breast. Hayward's son, Tim Baker, had a benign tumor removed from his mouth. Oh, God. So, yeah, pretty horrible, horrible stuff, you know? Um, And so on the set, there was like high winds a lot of the time and the sand was getting into people's mouths and eyes and they were breathing this stuff in uh, because they're in the desert, you know, and wind is a thing out here. Uh, so they're breathing in this like nuclear like affected dirt and then they bring it to Hollywood as well you know with them so it's reported that Howard Hughes felt guilty uh, about his decision regarding the film's production particularly over the decision to film at a hazardous site I, so this is why I'm, what I said earlier about how it's kind of hard to find this film. He bought every print of the film for $10 million and he kept it out of circulation for many years until Universal Pictures purchased the film from his estate in 1979. Okay. So, so then, so there's this rumor that The Conqueror, along with Ice Station Zebra, which was another of his films, uh, were the films that he watched endlessly while he was uh, bunkered up at the Desert Inn out here in Las Vegas. So Howard Hughes, when he lived towards the end of his life, he was in a lot of mental decline due to a lot. He had crashed several times. I think we talked about this on the podcast earlier, but he he crashed his plane several times. He had undiagnosed brain injuries. Um that he never dealt with paranoia, germophobia, you know, um, just full on uh, recluse towards the end of his life. And he spent part of his life bottled up, uh, barricaded up in the Pantages in Hollywood. But towards the very end of his life, he traveled a lot but he also came out here to Las Vegas and he would stay in hotels basically as long as they would let him stay. And he finally stayed at the desert Inn, and they finally got to the point where they were like, you can't stay here any longer. You've been yeah. here for a very long time. So Howard Hughes purchased the desert Inn, So he could <laughs> stay there. So he actually owned it for, um, for some time, but that was rumored to be, one of the films he watched endlessly, you know, uh, towards that period of his life where he was in mental decline. Yeah. So that is the film, The Conqueror. Um, I don't believe the film was cursed, but I film I feel like the set was cursed in a way that's not paranormal, but well, it definitely active. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. Yeah definitely not a good situation and like hopefully we learn from these situations you know and it's just so sad that this happens you know so just something that is a interesting thing that happened uh not I guess in Hollywood part of it was in Hollywood but with with a Hollywood movie so 
All right. So what do you have for us today? Well, the talking about curses on movies and people, I'll be talking about Bruce Lee and Brandon Lee. Mm, I think many of you that are familiar with cursed people in movies would recognize the name Bruce and, and Brandon Lee. Uh, but again, you delve into it. Is it is it really something supernatural or is it maybe something else? Hmm. It's still very sad, though. Yeah. I'm, I'll talk a little bit about Bruce Lee. I could go on forever about Bruce Lee. He's There's so much to him. Um, even in his short lifespan, he was very much full of life and did a lot and was uh, very hardworking and was kind of just known for being very good at whatever he was doing. Uh, so it's, I think that's why it's such a tragedy that he, he died so, so young because he was so full of potential. And he also was very influential, uh, especially for Asians in the Hollywood scene, because it's so interesting. You're talking about the conqueror here is an actual, very talented Asian performer that was finding it very hard to even break into the Hollywood mainstream. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But first, let's get to know Bruce Lee. So he was actually uh, born in San Francisco, November 27th, 1940. But his parents were just visiting there. Uh, his father was a performer. He was a Cantonese opera star and he was on tour. And one of the tour stops was in San Francisco. So his mother was there. She ends up giving birth. So he kind of ends up getting dual citizenship, you know, with the United States and um, over in Hong Kong. And his family returned to Hong Kong just a few months after he was born. And that's pretty much where he grew up. And his father was already an actor. So got him into the acting business at a young age and Bruce became a, a child actor. He wasn't doing martial arts at the time. He was just being a child actor. He was learning different martial arts. He was also very much into competitive dancing, you know, like ballroom dancing, uh, was also very much into poetry and philosophy. So again, just a very well-rounded person. And when he was 19 years old, he wanted to return to the United States to pursue acting and kind of become an actor here in the USA. So he moves to Seattle, and of course he has dual citizenship, so he's able to do this. He enrolls in college, and he decides he's going to make money by uh, training others how to do martial arts, and he actually opens up uh, multiple dojos. And he meets his wife, they get married. Um, after he opens his second dojo, he opens one up in, I believe, Seattle, and then another one in Oakland, he moves to Los Angeles to kind of focus again on acting. And again, I'm really truncating all of this stuff because even what, you know, with his dojos and his training, he was very influential. And there's like some really great stories about how he was challenged, uh, uh, challenging views on if martial arts should be taught to quote unquote, the white man. And like, there's a whole story about an, an epic fight, but we're focusing on the curse. So if you're interested in that, look it up, or we can do a whole podcast just on who Bruce Lee was. But to keep things short, um, he moves to Los Angeles, uh, still is teaching people how to do martial arts, um, but decides to focus more on his 
excuse me, his acting career. And in 1966, he becomes Cato in the series, The Green Hornet. And I think when you see Cato, he's very recognizable character. He he was the uh, valet, not the valet, but the, um, he looked like he was, he was dressed like a driver, kind of the black uniform, black hat with the black mask, very iconic. And he was on that show for a year. And then he was doing some other shows and had some success, but he wasn't ever able to break into being a a leading man or the main uh, role in any of these American movies. And that's because Hollywood did not believe that audiences wanted to see an Asian man as a lead. So that's how you get uh, what's his face playing Kong or uh, Genghis Khan. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so I'm totally shaking my head. Exactly, oh, right? Like yeah. how messed up that is. Like he's super yeah. talented. Uh, he's Let's not every- have an Asian person playing an Asian person. Right. How you dare know? they? I could I could list several white actors who played Asian characters. Oh, it, it's embarrassing. You know? Yeah. Like, one of my favorite actors is Myrna Loy. And she started her whole career out playing Asian characters. Yeah. You know? Uh bless her heart she like fought against that later in her life like was like I'm not going to be cast as this anymore but that was not uncommon you know right so yeah Uh, uh. (laughs) he is he was he's a star he had the discipline the training um he worked for it yeah so he goes back to hong kong and of course when he's in hong kong he is a success he ends up doing all of these different movies um he becomes you know a big star in hong kong kind of setting off a whole new genre of martial arts films he ends up budding up with one of his friends chow and they have their own production company concord productions and they're working on was it the the death game they're working on that movie but then warner brothers comes in and they're like oh hey so we see that you kind of do a really great job of you know martial arts out there um he was doing some he uh they had seen him doing some of his big movies and they were going to be doing a movie and they wanted him to be a lead. And that was kind of his break into American Hollywood mainstream films. So it was Enter the Dragon. So he films Enter the Dragon and his uh, his buddy and the person that he had run the studio Concords with said, mm, I don't know if you should be working with them. He was really hesitant on Bruce Lee kind of halting production on the the death the death game and doing this whole new production with Warner Brothers Um, but he he does it he does enter the dragon things are going well for him this is like opening doors for him here in the United States and with his own production company and they're going to you know restart uh filming the movie that they halted so that he could do enter the dragon and he ends up collapsing and dying about six days before the opening of Enter the Dragon. And it was kind of a mystery because at first, newspapers were told that Bruce Lee had collapsed in his home and he was found unconscious 
by his wife, Linda Lee, who then called the ambulance and then they took him to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Then it was later revealed that he wasn't at home, that he was at the house of Betty Ting Pei, uh, who was a Taiwanese actress. He was at her place and allegedly they were having an affair. So the story is um, Betty, Chow, and him went over to her place to look at a script. Chow had to leave for a dinner meeting. And I guess around 7.30, Lee started to complain of a headache and asked for an aspirin. Well, Betty had some prescription painkillers that she went ahead and gave to Bruce. And he took them and he went to lie down. But then he never got back up and Betty couldn't, um, he was unresponsive. She couldn't get him to wake up. So she calls Chow and then Chow comes over to hit her place. He can't revive uh, Bruce and they call the ambulance and kind of, I guess, to, to save face, he told reporters at the time that he Bruce was found at his home by his wife, I guess, so that people wouldn't kind of put it together that he was probably having an affair with this other woman. Um, so he's pronounced dead. And they said it was um, swelling in the brain that had caused him to become unconscious. And I guess during the filming of Enter the Dragon, he had actually collapsed on set um, and was taken to the hospital and for, again, bleeding in the brain, like a uh, brain swelling. And so he had to be treated for that. So I guess, you know, this wasn't like, oh my gosh, it came out of nowhere. Um, but autopsies later revealed that there was something in the painkiller. It was a very common um, ingredient in the painkillers at the time that he apparently had an allergic reaction to. And then that set off the swelling in the brain. And then that's what ended up killing him. But there are conspiracy theories. So there is something called the, the Lee curse that uh, the men of the Lee family have a tendency to die early in their life. So Bruce Lee actually had an older brother that had died when he was very young. Uh, Bruce Lee ends up dying at the age of 32. And then I'll talk in a, in a moment about his son, who ends up dying at the age of 28. So people believe that there is this curse. And then once we talk about Brandon's death, we can maybe revisit this whole curse idea. Uh, then there's conspiracy theories. One of the conspiracy theories was that his partner Chow might have worked uh, with Betty to go ahead and um, kill Bruce Lee. Because if he, if Bruce Lee dies, Chow being the partner of the production company, he's going to be getting all the royalties now. He'll be getting everything. And there was rumors that um, Chow was feeling as if Bruce Lee was going to be leaving him behind once he started to work with these American companies and that he would end up dissolving his production company, Chow would be left behind and he wouldn't make a dime. So there's conspiracy theories that Chow was the one that might have poisoned Bruce uh, so that he would die and that he would end up getting all the money. 
And they point to, well, when he first collapsed, it was Chow that first went to him and had his doctors look at him before getting him to an ambulance. And that when Betty could not revive Bruce, it was Chow who was the first person that she called to come over uh, to check. And then he tried to uh, revive Bruce, but then ended up having to call the ambulance. So there's the conspiracies around that. And so when Bruce died, he left behind uh, his wife and two kids, one of them being the eight-year-old Brandon Lee. So Brandon Lee kind of had to grow up in the shadow of his father. Uh, he had a lot of expectations put on him, being Bruce Lee's only son. And um it has some interesting commentary about his father. Uh, actually, Universal did a movie about Bruce Lee and they had approached Brandon Lee to play his father. And he was just like, uh, I don't know. I think that'd be a little bit awkward. Plus, there's the whole love story that I, I would have to do. And I don't, you know, that's kind of an awkward thing to play your dad who's fucking your mom, you know? Yeah. So, um. He declined that role, but um, the person that did end up taking that role, do, 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 hold on, sorry. The person that did play the role was Jason Scott Lee, no relation to the Lee family. Um, but he did some interviews with Brandon, kind of just talked to him like about his dad and you know any suggestions for the role. And Brandon told him, uh, the following in regard to the role, he said, I wouldn't survive in this part if I treated his father like a god. He said his father was, after all, a man who had a profound destiny, but he was not a god. He was a man who had a temper, a lot of anger, who found mediocrity offensive. Sometimes he was rather merciless. So I think that kind of gives wow. you an idea of the relationship that Bruce and Brandon had it. This is at a young age. Remember, he died yeah. at the age of eight. So everything he's telling uh, Jason is really just within those eight years. Yeah. Kind of imagine growing up with somebody, I guess, that had a temper that was very, you know, perfectionist. Um, but that didn't deter Brandon from wanting to follow in his father's footsteps. So he also trained in martial arts. Um, and he also wanted to be an actor, but like his father, he was very dedicated to working hard for it. He never expected anything to be given to him just because he was Bruce Lee's son. It, he didn't treat it like, oh, I'm deserving of being treated differently. It was more of, I have to earn, um, following my father's footsteps. I have to earn the legacy that he kind of left behind. So he studied acting at Emerson College and the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute. So he was oh, classically wow. trained. Yeah, exactly, right? A very hard worker. Um, he started off doing small roles in TV, you know, with doing a lot of the martial arts. Um, then uh, he kind of got noticed and that's how he broke into the movies. Uh, he did a, a movie called Showdown in Little Tokyo, which was more of like a, a cult classic. Uh, and then he did rapid fire. And so he was kind of, his career was, was coming up. He was being, a, he was able to break into the industry based on his work, not based on 
who his father was. Like he really did earn his way up into the ranks and then got cast uh, as the lead in The Crow. And The Crow was a very, I don't want to say unique movie at the time. Um, it was based off a comic book of the same name. Mm-hmm. 1993. It feels very 90s. Oh, very, yes. Very, very 90s. It's there were a lot of a lot of comic book movies coming out at the time. No, there wasn't. Oh, there wasn't. Oh, because no. like um, I, I want to say maybe after that there were. I mean, at the time it was Batman. Yeah. And Blade Runner. I'm like new comic book movies. Yeah. That but people. I was were thinking seeing. like, what is it? Oh shoot! What is that? What a uh, Mario Brothers movie that came out and like tank girl as well oh, that might have been late it was late 90s yeah. yeah or later than that um but i and at the time it was darker than the comic book movies you were seeing like you know batman gotham city mm-hmm. the, the crow went into a much darker uh, realm than that and like it, it's basically uh, the character that Bruce Lee or Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee is playing um, him and his fiance get uh, attacked the night before Halloween. Basically, his fiance gets attacked and assaulted by this gang and uh, his character uh, basically walks in on his fiance getting assaulted. One of the gang members shoots him. Uh, they both die. And the supernatural crow revives him from the afterlife so that he can seek his revenge. So it's one of those kinds of movies. Um, and Brandon really took this uh, the role seriously. He trained uh, very rigorous, rigorously for the role. Um, he said he didn't want it to look like he was a superhero. He wanted to look like a rock star. So he was on a very strict diet so that he looked as thin as possible. Uh, He would even be known to like measure his food out. Uh, And then when he was exercising, he was doing a lot of exercises that were keeping his muscles from bulking up, but like stretched out and thin so that he didn't look bulky uh, like a superhero. He wanted, again, to kind of have that thin gaunt look of, you know, a rock star. Uh, and for the resurrection scene uh, to prepare for it he would actually submerse himself in bags of ice because he said being being resurrected must be freezing cold so he wanted to put himself in that mindset for that particular scene so that when you're seeing him shivering that's real because he had just gotten done packing a whole bunch of uh, ice on him now there's uh stories about this movie itself being cursed so on the first day of shooting and this is super messed up on the first day of shooting um an electrician was backing a cherry picker truck up and hit a high tension wire on the power lines above him he was electrocuted and caught on fire. Everyone rushed him to the hospital where he was treated for second and third degree burns. And although he survived, the electronic, the electrician's ears had to be removed. Um, that is from uh, Curse Films, The Crow Curse Explained on Screen Rant. And uh, I also read, you know, on Wikipedia, 
And then another video, which is the Bruce Lee curse, the story of the crow, which you can find on Nikki Glamour's uh, YouTube channel, which she also talks about this curse. Uh, also mentions that his uh, the electrician's organs were burned. Like that's how badly it was. I mean, he ended up surviving, but it was like a really bad injury. And that's the first day of production. And then I you know, guess a, a hurricane had destroyed one of their sets. So now they're thinking that, oh, it's the Bruce Lee curse. Mm. Um, another thing about the whole Bruce Lee curse is the fact that there was the triad group, which was supposedly uh, big filmmakers in Hong Kong, had a lot of ties to the different movies. Bruce Lee never worked with them. And so people, again, come up with the conspiracy theory that they may had some issues with, you know, the death the mysterious death of Bruce Lee and uh, the subsequent curse on this movie that his son was trying to do. Um, so that was one of the theories. And then on March 31st in 1993, that's when the infamous incident happened. So they were pretty much filming late at night, early in the morning uh, they were saying, you know, Bruce Lee or Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee would get sleep during a little bit during the day, um, then get up, go to the gym. He would train and then they would pretty much film all night. So he was working really hard on this movie. Mm -hmm. um, the scene that they were filming that evening is a scene where his character has a flashback to him uh coming upon his fiance being assaulted and attacked by these gang members. And then one of the gang members is supposed to shoot him. That gang member was played by Michael Massey. And if you don't recognize the name, if you look him up, you will definitely recognize uh, his, what he, what else he has been in. Um, but it's Michael Massey, M-A-S-S-E-E. -S -S -E. And Oh, this poor actor. So he is given, Michael Massey is given the the gun, the prop gun. Now, at this time, a lot of real guns were being used for these productions, but they would usually load them with blanks. Uh, blanks will make the sound and the, the, um, the flash and everything, but it won't actually fire a live round. But there was kind of a lot of negligence around the firearms. So what happened with this particular firearm, they were using a revolver and they were doing a, like an up-close scene of the bullets. So they were using dummy bullets that were not made properly. Um, they were dummy rounds that were improvised from live cartridges. So what they did was they just removed the powder so there wouldn't be anything that would explode. Uh, so then that way, when they had the up-close shots, they looked like real bullets. But the problem was uh, the people that created those dummy rounds didn't take the primers off of the cartridges. So that would mean if they accidentally got fired, it wouldn't necessarily fire a projectile, but it would still create an, an explosion in the chamber. And that's actually what happened. It was somebody accidentally fired one of the dummy rounds. Um, 
the energy from the primer uh, was enough to separate the bullet from the casing and it pushed part of it into the barrel and kind of got stuck there. And this kind of thing happens, it's called a squib load. Now this happened weeks before the scene where Michael Massey's character is supposed to shoot Brandon. Yeah. So nobody had taken care of this gun apparently. Uh, to re nobody removed that piece of the bullet uh, from the barrel where it had been had been stuck. So then, when they're using it for this scene, they load it up with the blanks. The problem is the blanks have enough power to force that piece of the bullet out of the chamber going at the same rate a live round would have been fired off. So they had the scene choreographed to where Michael Massey would shoot Brandon and he was supposed to shoot him about 12 to 15 feet away, which is pretty close. And that Brandon's character was going to fall forwards. And he also had in like the bag, he was carrying like a, a brown plastic bag. There's also little explosives that were going to go off as well to complete the effect. Like he had been shot. Um, so Michael Massey goes ahead. He fires the gun and uh, the, the explosions in the bag go off and Brandon falls backwards instead of forwards, like they had discussed. And they're thinking, oh, okay, that's interesting. Wondering why did he fall backwards? He should have fallen forwards. The director calls cut and they're waiting for Brandon to get up, but he doesn't. So at first they're thinking, is he really getting into character? Kind of one of those things, or is he kind of playing a joke on us? Um, but then one of the crew members approaches him and realizes that no, Brandon is unconscious and he's breathing heavily. They don't assume that he's gotten shot. What they think happens is that when he fell, he hit his head and became unconscious. So they bring the medic over who is treating him like he's hit his head. Um, they check his pulse and it's it's strong. But then within two to three minutes, his pulse starts to get slower and slower and slower to where it becomes undetectable. Yeah. And then they realize an actual pool of blood is spreading out underneath him. That's when they figured out, oh, no, he has actually been shot. So they call an ambulance. Um, he's rushed to the hospital. Uh, he is uh, they have to do emergency surgery. What happened was he got shot in the stomach. The bullet did nick one of the arteries and then wedged itself into his spine. So it was six hours that they performed surgery on him, um, but they weren't able to save him. So he was pronounced dead 12 hours after he was shot on March 31st of 1993. Um, so then the conspiracy theories begin as well. Uh, people were saying that um, it, he was sabotaged because of jealousy that there were people in the industry that were saying that he, because of who his father was, that he was being given this opportunities that he never would have been given, that he was very coddled and spoiled and that kind of thing. It's like he was really working very hard as an actor. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't phoning it in. Mm -hmm. um, 
so and then of course there's the bruce lee curse where the the lee men will die of mysterious causes while they're young and in their prime bruce lee was 32 brandon was 28 um the curse on the movies you know was maybe it was the triads kind of getting back at you know bruce lee's uh, son because i think bruce lee had done a movie where one of the characters ends up dying from uh, a, a prop gun being actually loaded with a bullet. So that's why they were putting correlation. Like, it's very interesting that now yeah. Bruce Lee's son dies in the same way. But I remember there was that quote, or it's called um, Hanlon's Razor, where it says, never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by neglect. And I feel that that's kind of what the curse on the Crow movie, movie is more about, that it's not necessarily uh, somebody getting revenge on Brandon Lee. It was just more of people neglecting to do their their job when it came to the firearm safety of you know, making sure that there was no projectiles in the barrel, the safety, the fact that they were making those dummy rounds from live rounds and then not making sure that they were properly um, created, so to speak. But, like, even in when I went to school and we did stage combat, we were told you never point a gun at a person. Yeah. And because the, through the camera lens, you can be slightly off of the person, you know, and we had to learn where everybody's major arteries were. Yeah. You know? And you need to make it look like you're pointing at that area because that's where you would shoot a person. But you need to be at least six inches off from that area. Yeah. You know, so that he should have never been pointing the gun directly at him. But that means they should have had a real stage combat firearm safety person on set. Yeah. You know, who knew that. And the, yeah. the actor, Michael Masti, he actually did not act for a year after that. He was so traumatized by the experience yeah. and everything. Because you got to think in his mind, he was handed something that he was told was safe yeah. and was told to do something they, they had all choreographed and that it was, and that they, for the, majority of the time um they were doing these same kind of scenes because one of the powers of the crow is that he has self-healing abilities so yeah. there's so many scenes in that movie of brandon lee's character being shot and then it's healing so they had been doing this over and over again so i guess in this was towards the end of their filming you know he had no reason to think this was going to go any differently um another thing there were some rumors that were released that the original shooting scene where brandon actually gets shot was included in the final cut of the film and that is not true so uh that film was turned into evidence to the local police where they did an investigation and they pretty much ruled that it was yeah, negligence. It was an accident. Mm -hmm. Nothing was maliciously done, just a series of unfortunate events. Uh, and then after that, they allegedly have destroyed 
that film, the celluloid that it was on, so that no one TMZ will never get a hold of it. Yeah. No one's going to get a hold and exploit it. And that's understood. You don't want to see that. That's yeah. That's not something that should ever. Thank God it was never made publicly, so it was yeah. never in all of the scenes that are in the movie of him getting yeah. shot were highly choreographed. Yeah, and not nothing real. Um, but speak, speaking of that, though, the scene from the Twilight Zone movie where the two kids, you can find that on YouTube. And it is like, I've seen it uh, and it's appalling. Like, I regret even watching that. Yeah, I'm not going to watch and, it. Yeah. It's, I made that mistake with um, the the documentary, the bear one. Mm, it's eaten by a bear. It, and oh. they, in the documentary, they they have the recording, the sound recording that you don't ever hear while you're watching the documentary because they're like, yeah, you don't want to listen to it. I'm like, oh, I want to listen to it. And I listened to it and I was like, oh, oh no, I should not have listened to this. Terrible, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was like, "Mm." so it's a good thing those images were never released to the public because I don't think they should ever be, yeah. But it it was traumatic for the crew, everyone around there, you know, um so production halted uh it was paramount pictures that was producing they were going to also distribute the film now brandon's family and his estate gave them permission to continue on with the production they knew how much this role meant to brandon um and that they wanted this this movie to see the light as a as a way to honor all the work that he had put into it. Yeah. But Paramount didn't want to be seen as trying to profit off of the death of Brandon yeah. Lee. So they were like, sorry, we can't, um, we can't be a part of this anymore. So then Miramax comes in. And oh, they- Mr. Weinstein. <laughs> yeah, we won't get Good old Mr. Weinstein. Oh yeah. god. Um, so anyways, Miramax comes in, they become the distributor. That's how the light the movie sees, you know, the light of day, and it becomes a a, a huge success. Yeah. And when they were doing the advertising for the movie, they never really they weren't playing off of the tragedy. They weren't trying to play off of his death. They were right. just trying to promote this, you know, as a movie, kind of, you know, something that his legacy can live on. Um, and it has uh, so many people talk about this movie as being so inspirational to them. Um, it's very, when you talk to somebody that loves the movie, The Crow, yeah. it's, it's very important to them. So be just yeah. became a very important movie to a lot of people during that time. Very iconic. Yeah. I, I mean, I can definitely relate to that. That movie means a lot to me right. growing up and just being different and, uh, yeah. you know, you know, my birthday's the day before Halloween, and that's the whole time period that the movie takes place. And you know, there's a character in it who's like this girl who skates skateboards, and like I skateboarded all the time. My mom brought that up the other day. Uh, she was like, "Oh, you could just skateboard to work," and I'm like, "Mom, I'm like 34 <laughs> now." And uh, but good point. Maybe I will. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? But like so much of who I was growing up I like identified with that film 
you yeah. know specifically that young girl character that's that's in the film you mm-hmm. know and not so much like Brandon Lee's character but you know I there were a lot that I that there's a lot that that film means to me so anyways yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> meant a lot to a lot of different people yeah even now the makeup is still very iconic you can still you see it you'll know exactly what it's from oh yeah that's from the crow um let's see yeah and it the the curse i guess continued on for the subsequent sequels and stuff but again is it really just a curse or is it just kind of bad luck or bad things happening on production you know things always happen we you know we worked on the studio tour and you just hear about how stuff happens on movie sets and it's oh yeah very common for chaos to ensue yeah actors and production crews were all very superstitious so it's kind of Mm-hmm. Easy for us to start seeing patterns maybe with these different movies mm-hmm. and associate them with a curse when in reality it's nothing there and I think that the biggest tragedy though and why I think there's just so many conspiracy theories about curses or revenge around the deaths of these two men was really they were in the peak of their careers, they had so much going for wow. them. They were both incredibly hardworking, dedicated to their craft, um, and that they were kind of taken out by whoopsies. And that's kind of hard to accept, I think. Yeah. You want to believe that there's an order to the universe. And so it's easier to be like, oh, well, it's a supernatural curse or people were out to get them because it's a little bit easier to accept. Yeah. And that's part of like the grieving process too, is to, you know, try to find an explanation. Right. It's something other than, whoops, we gave him the wrong medication whoops we neglected to make sure our firearms were safe and it's just these stupid stupid little preventable things that just end these lives so prematurely that i think it's really hard for people to accept without wanting wanting to create more meaning to it which is completely understandable yeah Yeah. like you said the grieving process so that's those are the curses and the conspiracy behind the death of Bruce and Brandon Lee, but they have left behind a legacy of work that if you want to honor them, definitely yeah. check it out. Bruce Lee is just so iconic. Um, but also, yeah, I remember what his son said. He wasn't a god, that he was also a, a flawed human individual. Oh, yeah. So, yep, that's so, the story. Well, thank you. I remember growing up watching the Crow TV show, which I doubt anybody <laughs> watched that other than me. Not a Brandon Lee vehicle whatsoever. No, nope, nope. uh, no, not nearly anything really to do uh, with the movie other than it was a dead guy who was a vigilante. Um, in the show, when he would turn into, he would be normal and then he would turn into the Crow and the makeup would appear on his face. Yeah, like like Power Rangers going into costume or like becoming the Hulk or something, you know. Um, but I watched that show quite a bit, and you know, definitely 
something that formed me into the macabre gothic person I am today. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's many a macabre gothic individual, I believe. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that movie had a huge impact yeah. on me. And now I'm just thinking about it. I used to skateboard in the rain, um, just like that little girl. <laughs> um you know, and people who've not seen the movie are like, what is she talking about? But it is. The movie. But then yeah. in well, skateboarding, that's Tia. So. Yeah. Yeah. Shaved yeah. head and everything. Yes. Um, but yeah, but thank you for sharing that. Uh, we should definitely do more of these conspiracy theories behind movies and, um, you know, because there's so many out there. Um, yeah. And like you said, yes, people who are in film in movie sets or in theater, any sort of arts in particular are very superstitious, you know? So superstitious. Yeah. Like, absolute. I'm so in the, um, the old sound stages that eventually got knocked down for Super Nintendo World, one of those sound stages was used to film the original Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. They had the curtains up. And the original curtains, they never took down because of superstition. If they took it down, it was going to curse the soundstage. Yeah. Things don't make sense. But yeah, you just, you don't want to play. You just don't want to mess with it. That's how superstitious we are. People get hurt. I mean, I'm telling you, anytime I have heard the Scottish play being said, and you don't do the appropriate actions, people get hurt. I think that also goes with hand in hand with being disrespectful though, as well. Like if you're going to say the, the name of the Scottish play, which I won't say out loud, we're not even in a theater. I know that's that's how, that's how uh, uh, superstitious we are. Yeah. Uh, But there's a level of, if you're not going to respect that, then you're probably disrespectful or neglectful somewhere else, which is going to be this whole, what is it? Rube Goldberg effect yes <laughs> you know yeah so um you know there might be some science behind that there might be some something but you know uh but yes I will not say say that you're also not supposed to have a bible in in the theater which I fully agree with um for many reasons um because I don't think you should have a bible anywhere uh- <laughs> you're never supposed to whistle well that's like the whistling thing is because that's like a stage cue and that might be uh telling one of the stage hands to like drop a flat you know uh so yeah you're not supposed to whistle with that that makes sense um what else i'm trying to think of other ones ghost lights what's that the single light that they put in the middle of the stage oh the the ghost ghost light yeah Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it protect the ghosts or keep them away? I yeah. just know it has something to do with ghosts. Yeah. But I mean, you can see it as a safety thing. Theaters are dark. So when you're walking through there, it's nice to have a light that will tell yeah. you where the end of the stage is so you don't fall off. But yeah. Um, oh, and that you need to have a dark day at your theater. Yes. But I've seen that actually happen. So I used to work for a theater in Hollywood, a small black box theater. And we always had Wednesdays was the dark day, but Wednesday was the day we cleaned the theater. We checked on technical stuff 
if you absolutely needed to have a rehearsal, that was the day we could maybe schedule something, some sort of pickup rehearsal there because we knew nothing was going on in the theater. You know, when they started, stopped having the dark day and they were doing productions every single day, like shit went sour really quickly. And it had more to do, I think, with the fact that the owner became checked out and he was also going through relationship stuff with the lady who was running the oh, yeah. uh, the kids theater there. Okay. She like in the middle of like a production that she was like in, like screamed at him and walked out like, oh, no. So that's that was a thing that happened. But also like technical things started to fall apart and the theater became dirty and people didn't want to work there anymore because of the drama but because also it's like not a welcoming environment and it's like if we just would have the dark day that's the day where things would get um and we're kind of going through that now at my former place of employment the it sounds like it bagans (laughs) (laughs) house of horrors um you know, uh, they removed one of the dark days. It used to be dark two days a week, but now things are in ill repair um, and other dramatic things are happening, which I think also uh, has to do with management not having a day of rest as well and less, uh, you know, the the workers not having a day of rest. So that's, you know definitely there's some science behind that superstition and i've seen i mean i've seen it happen i'm seeing it happen now so you know it's important to have that day of rest period yeah. always is the theater ghosts have to rest because they have to put up with our bullshit the rest of the, the week <laughs> you know theater not be haunted there's always every theater has its ghosts yeah right? and yeah. i you know and you're not gonna haunt the place that you died at you're going to haunt the place that you had an emotional attachment to, you and know. Part, I've known all stories is that the ghosts usually aren't going to mess up the productions. They just, yeah. they seem to respect the theater. Uh, PCPA, the Marion Theater, apparently was haunted by people that were benefactors. Speaking mm-hmm. about, you know, being haunting a place that you have an emotional attachment. It's like, of course, the benefactor is not going to mess up the show. They're going to want to you know maybe watch the shows and enjoy this environment that they love so much so but speaking of ghosts that mess up theaters i learned today that there is a 1980s or 90s version of the phantom of the opera where robert ingold plays the phantom of the opera oh there's Um, so many versions of that show but oh my god yeah and i heard it's like very accurate to the book um of the opera and i am a hundred percent down for seeing that so on my two-week vacation that i have here unwanted vacation (laughs) it's your time to rest and my theater of myself is going to be resting yes and watching bad 80s horror movies so if i can get a hold of that i will be discussing that on our next podcast Um, (laughs) But anyways, on that note, we should probably wrap this one up. So this has been Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Please email us at hollywoodshaunted at gmail.com. Watch my TikToks at my weird little podcast. 
uh, watch our sit or listen to our sister podcast, my weird little podcast where we get deeper into weird stuff. Please send us suggestions. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Tweet at us. Tweet at us. Um, you know, message us on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at my weird little podcast. Patrick want, runs the Hollywood Haunted podcast Facebook, so you can get a hold of one of us somehow. Um, you could probably find my personal Instagram or Facebook. You know, I'm not <laughs> that hard to find. Um, and stalk me if you want to. <laughs> um, and I don't care. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so stay spooky, everyone. Ooh. Spooky, woo.